important to keep open and secret. We lost a personal friend of mine, John Michael. I'd like to propose a toast to John. To John. Later on this year, we lost uh, Pat Hewitt. Most of you didn't know her. Nick and Caroline's mother were on a couple of trips together. She was looking forward to tonight, but sadly passed away before she made it. So if you wouldn't mind raising your glass again to Pat. Thank you all. We're going to get started. If you guys want to come around and ask questions, um, now is the time. Josh Gates co-host. You've been on the show three times now. And I think he recently co-hosted one of his meetups. Yes, yeah, yeah. You were featured in a meetup. That's very nice. Yeah, last uh, last week, uh, Josh came to uh, Morristown. Uh, he did a show. If, if any of you ever get a chance, it's actually a very fun show. It goes through uh, his experience, how he got, he was a, he, he tells he was an archaeology and a drama major, and what do you do with that? So I guess you host a show like Expedition Unknown. But the, the most fun part of the show was, as he's going through everything, he gets to the end, he comes to a question and answer period. And during the question and answers, he's people are asking the most fascinating questions because this guy's been all over the world. So the first question is, what does it smell like to open a sarcophagus in the pyramids of Giza after 2,000 years? And he answers. Somebody else goes, what's something you looked for, a monster, or goes, that you didn't want to find? And he's going, oh. And so he stops the questions and answers, and he said, all right, listen, I, I know what you really want to talk about. He said, how many people have a question about the secret? And I mean, hands in the air like crazy. And I, I couldn't believe it, because of all the things that he does and all the shows that he does, there's such a fascination, which I'm sure comes from the idea that most people will never climb the Himalayas to look for a Yeti or dive in Scotland to look for the Loch Ness Monster. But you have a chance. You have an equal chance to find a treasure in New York or, or St. Augustine. So he said uh, he gets about 50 emails a day. Uh, most people have either solved or think they've solved. Uh, and he loves talking about it. So we did, he called my name out and I got to stand up, he surprised me and we did about eight or nine minutes. My wife must have posted it on Facebook because I'm not on 
social media, but it was a great laugh. It was a lot of fun. And he does love this. He said again, I remember him backstage, and he said, of all the things he's done, he gets more questions about this and there's more enthusiasm about this than anything else uh, that he's participated in. And just in case anybody's wondering, he's working on a solve. He said at this point, he's not planning on doing another show because everything's sort of wrapped up very neatly. However, disclaimer, that's not to say if somebody does find one, he wouldn't jump at the chance to do another episode. So it's out there. Um, so don't give up because he still is fascinated with it as everybody else is. We forgot the most important part. Oh, we need the light. There we go. There we go. We have the light. Here we see the blue light. We're on the blue light. Yeah, yeah. Uh, much better. That's much better. So, so Ben, I have to ask. You guys did this book 40 years ago. You put out this book when I was. 40 eight, years ago? It's, it's more, than, it's more than that. You put out this book when I was like eight months old. I was only, not, I was only nine. What did you think that after 40 years, you'd have random people meeting in a bar in Midtown Manhattan just to talk? Absolutely not. Have you, have you got another book that people meet up in? I mean, <laughs> I, I still can't believe this. It's crazy, right? It's crazy. I mean, I, about a year and a half ago, when John Michaels uh, contacted me, I was running home to do your podcast one night, and I came into my building, and I was running to the elevator, and my neighbor was there. He said, well, why are you running so fast? I said, I'm going to be on a podcast about this book that I did 40, like 38 years ago, maybe 38 years ago, called The Secret. He goes, The Secret? He said, my two daughters, who are like 11 and 9, are looking for the treasure. I said, wait a minute. This is the book that I did in 1982 that I forgot about in 1983. <laughs> okay? I mean, it was basically a job that I did for Byron. Uh, Byron and I were really good friends. We knew each other since we were kids. But to believe, I can't believe it. I still can't believe it. Yeah. I mean, I think you people are all crazy. <laughs> we are. We are. There's no question about it. But it's, it's a good crazy. Yeah, a, yeah, I think I think Byron, looking down at us right now, is saying fantastic, great. I really do. Well, I was going to ask that question. You stole that from me, but that's I'm okay. Sorry. I'm sorry. That's okay. That's what I um, so the the question everybody has is, where are the casks? No, I'm yeah, kidding. did you let us know? Um, <laughs> that was a joke. Um, so was it really? Kind of, kind of. Um, so. Andy, this morning you shared your story about um, you and Brian finding the cast. Can you share that with everybody? Sure. I, I, I think it's probably well documented. And, and thank you to these guys because I, I watch their podcasts and, and sometimes I get lucky enough to be on them. And my wife will walk in and go, seriously, you're doing another podcast? And, it's it's uh, crazy to me that Andy Abrams is like, we watched, I watched the podcast. Oh, and these no. guys are like, you're so knowledgeable and it's so much fun. And, you get these great questions, and, and I love it. And and so um, most of the stuff is known, but I'm always trying to come up with, with different things to tell people. Um, it's 2004, and I remember we had been looking and looking, and I remember we were in Atlantic City, and uh, Brian pulls out a picture. We're in a bar in Atlantic City in the Borgata. He pulls out a picture of the Cleveland pillars in the wall. And they had made the connection at that point. It was a crazy thing because somebody had put it through 
the internet and it didn't come up and then all of a sudden, Johan, I think, it, it came up with a match with the names on the wall and as soon as he showed me the picture, I was spellbound because you, you, there, when you have an aha moment in life, you never forget that aha. It's like falling in love for the first time. And I, I said, oh my God, like, if this is really there, it's really there. And things went very quickly from there because that was in April of 2004. And within a month, and we probably would have done it quicker, uh, we decided to go out. We went out the weekend of Mother's Day. And, uh, and I was telling you guys earlier, he had had a, a backup friend just in case I couldn't make it. Because it was Mother's Day and I had two little kids and I wasn't really sure if my wife was going to be super keen on me going treasure hunting that weekend. So um, I said, can I go? And, and I think things happen for a reason, particularly in this genre, right? You, you have to get lucky uh, because when we went out, I was very fortunate that he chose me to do this work with him back in 2002 and three and four. I met some fantastic people who I used to read about and quest for treasure and their ideas were extraordinary. And I'm like, I'm in, I'm in the presence of such smart people. And, and, uh, and so I, I said I'd go. Had I not gone, he had a, a backup. And the other guy might have gone with him. And they might have gone out there. You know, when we got there, and I got to tell some nice people this morning, this afternoon about it, you know, when we walked in and went, made our way through the Italian garden and saw the, the lion's head and the fountain, you know, chills, goosebumps. We're like, oh my God, right? And the arch. And then the, the big cup that was in front of the center, oh my God. And then we worked our way to the Greek garden. And it's great because the road curved that way. So naturally, we brought us in, parked the car, got out, saw the pillars and the wall, and just had a heart attack. Like, that, that's it. Like, when you, when you do your searching, it's great. When you do your research, it's great. But when you get boots on the ground and you see something, and it gives you those goosebumps, and you, you stand someplace and go, he was here, right? And he gave Ben dolls to take pictures of, and, and it's this spot. I'm sorry if I'm talking too long. But, you know, we, we walk down, and there's this huge rectangular plot bigger than this room. And we see the wall, and we see, and if you walk down, the names are on the wall the way it says the secret pockets, it's facing us. As we go, oh, rectangular plot, it must be right here. So we're starting to figure out how to do this, and they start setting up these chairs, these white chairs. And we had had a drop dead time, we had to leave to get home for Mother's Day. And we said to the guy, what are the chairs? And he said, this is, there's a wedding this morning. And we said, why? And he said, a wedding. And we said, oh, God, where? He said, right here. And now we knew we were not going to be able, we'd driven, I don't know, 10 hours or more, 12 hours. We had three hours of sleep, and we were not going to be able to dig on this side of the wall. And the more chairs they set up, we then went around the back, and that's when we realized, okay, you could walk up two, three, four, eight, to seventh step up, you can jump, and we, it, it made it much easier to visualize. Um, but the whole time we're digging, there's this couple that remembers that day for a very different reason because they were married and the entire time where they were trying to be quiet because it, it, when you look at pictures of the wall there are not cutouts but there are sort of windows without panes that see through to the other side and I'm sure at any time we could have jumped in and kind of photobombed the wedding pictures um, but they're getting married and people kept walking around to us and we're trying to be quiet we're excited right and they're like 
what's going on? And we're like, we're digging for buried treasure. And more people will come. Man, look at these guys, right? And we got through the entire ceremony, the entire whatever reception. They're gone. They probably did their entire honeymoon by the time we hit the bottom. Um, but somebody somewhere got married while we were finding this. So um, it was an amazing experience. And, and I say, I said to these guys this morning, for all the research you do and all the solves that you come up with, right? You still have to get a little bit lucky. You really do because it's that proverbial needle in the haystack. We dug to a certain point and hit rock bottom. And I mean, that was literal and figuratively rock bottom. When you get to the bottom, you don't find it. You go from here and the adrenaline to here like maybe it doesn't exist. And, uh, and to know that it was, you know, if I'm here, it was where Bradley's sitting. And we could have easily left Cleveland and not found it, and we would have probably posted somewhere in Presby Treasure, dug to the bottom, nothing here, which means probably nobody would have gone back. Is why we your time. We did it, and, uh, and you were this close, and no one would have found it. And I don't know if there would have been a surge, because I know after we posted the pictures and we made the find, it was this renewed sort of, oh my God, they found one. Like some regular guys found a treasure, and we were like little kids who found buried treasure, and there were 10 more out there. And so go, find it, do what you can. And I think that created a new buzz and a new round of excitement. And I'm sorry, Ben, that's what brought you back into this whole thing. <laughs> that's okay. But it's been great. And, and, uh, and so that day changed a lot for Brian and me. Ben, um, so earlier, uh, Andy and I were talking about it, and he mentioned how he videotaped the, the find. And he's like, you know, it's not like now where you can just take a phone out of your pocket and videotape it. Right, right. Um, and just, you know, world of technology changed from then and now, you know, from 1982, especially from then and now, in photography and film. Um, can you talk to us about the project um, and how professionally you were a photographer then and kind of how that has evolved now? So uh, I would say to, so once Byron signed me to do this book, I would, because we were very, 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 very good friends. He's probably like one of my best friends. And he called me up and I said, Byron, I'm going to Washington, D.C. this weekend. He says, you're going to Washington, D.C.? He said, you got to take this sculpture, which is the left wing and the right wing eagle. You got to take it and you got to shoot it in front of the Capitol building. Now, could you imagine doing that in 2021? I would have been arrested. I would have been in jail right now with, with, with Rudy Giuliani. Um, <laughs> So I went down there with my wife and went to visit some friends in, uh, in Arlington, Virginia, actually. And uh, I, took the, I took the seagull, the sculpture, I took it in a shopping bag on the airplane. Because in those days, there were no metal detectors. You just took anything, anything you wanted to take on the airplane. You could, you, you could have taken a gun, actually, probably, and they wouldn't have done anything. But, so, so I put this eagle on this wall around this capital. And I photographed it, and then I took it to the steps, photographed it. Nobody said a thing. Nobody, I mean, one or two people came up and said, what is it? I said, it's for a book project I'm, I'm working on, which I thought was going to be a total failure. And uh, I would go to Florida to visit my father. You're going to Florida? You got to take a picture of the real estate, this Robert Morley character in drag. Uh, you're going to San Francisco? You gotta take the you gotta take the frog out to San Francisco and forget the frog. <laughs> this is what really 
it was about. I didn't know what this book was about. I never knew what this book was about. I get emails, I'm still getting, I got an email last week. Do you know where, do you think the treasure is buried in Prospect Park? I said, I have no idea. Byron's wife had no idea. I speak to Sandy all the time. This was just a book project that I thought was gonna, I got paid for, and it would go away, and would never come back. Well, I guess I was wrong, I'm wrong a lot. Actually, um, that's all I could tell you. But it's, it's so interesting to me that these were these great friends, right? Between you and Byron and, and John Jukalankar, and there was the chance that he could have shared this with you. He could have shared it with, with John Jude. He could have shared it with the different writers. And after the fact, I mean, as tragic as everything was, and, and passing away so early, and, and again, timing-wise, thank God, I, I, I think how lucky and fortunate blessed we were that we found him while he was still alive, because he got a huge kick out of when yeah. he came in that day yeah. and met him. You know, it was like, he did what? He found what? And he, he was taking pictures, and it was fun. Um, but if he had shared that, oh my God, the pressure on you right now, the pressure on John Judah, come on, tell us, do you know that? And they really don't know, like he kept everybody in the dark for their part, right? Right. But he didn't share, so you never really got to know. So, but I, I, I have to tell you, Byron and I would spend a lot of time taking our kids. Now his daughters, one of his daughters is around the same age as my younger son. We would drive out, he said, Ben, let's go to Coney Island. We went to Coney Island several times together, okay? Mm -hmm. And I really have not followed the treasure at all, but he loved, Coney Island. Now, I don't want you all to run out of here with shovels <laughs> and go to Coney Island. But I got to tell you, Coney Island was very dear to him. It really was. And we spent a lot of times with our kids. And our wives never went, by the way. It was just the two fathers, the two daughters, the two sons, and we would drive out to Coney Island. And I'm not saying there's anything buried there. I mean, I get calls and emails. Ben, it's got to be Prospect Park. It has to be Prospect I don't have any idea. I really don't know. Well, with you, with you not knowing, with, with everybody sort of being kept out of the loop, did you even know about the Japanese translation? Did you know no, not, I didn't know a thing about it. Wow. Not a thing about it, no. So, no. I have an idea in my head that uh, you, that Byron, that Joellen, that John Palancar, that John Perard, everybody that was involved were just the best of friends. Was it a, a giant group of friends, or was Byron like the middle spoke? Byron was the middle spoke. Joellen and I got very friendly. Um, in fact, I spoke to her like maybe three hours ago today. Uh, John, I met once. John Parad, I know because he works at Lincoln Center Film where my son works as a manager. Uh, but we, we really didn't know each other. We had a meeting with Ted Mann and Sean Kelly, who you know wrote for National Lampoon. And uh, you know, I, I went to this meeting, they talked for two hours, and I got to tell you, I don't know what the hell they talked about. <laughs> I, I was like, okay, it's a job. I want to get paid, get it done, and it's over. This is really strange for me, I got to tell you. It's just, it makes absolutely no sense. I'm glad you're all involved. It's, something, it's better than watching a football game, isn't it really? Yeah, Seriously. Absolutely. Because your team is going to lose every week. <laughs> so, at least my team's losing well, it for sure. Team also loses every week. 
Yeah, every week. Every week. So, you know what? We were walking from breakfast this morning over, and um, we walked past some hotel, and there's this plaque on the wall, right? And right. we see it, and we stop. And you have to stop and read it. This is the Benjamin so-and-so. Because every detail in life means something. Like, who is this? You know, and it doesn't always have to relate to the home, but it makes you stop and appreciate everything around you. This morning I'm driving in from New Jersey, I'm driving past Roosevelt Island, and I remember when that was a, a big obsession of mine. And there's so much traffic, it's great, because I actually can look at Roosevelt Island and take in certain parts, you know, and Dickens wrote about that, and, and, and I remember, the, you know, where the insane asylum was, and, and I'm looking at it, and I almost ran into the car in front of me, but, you know, I, it, Everything has more meaning, and, and you stop and you look at things differently because it's important to pause and to appreciate the details in life, and it's an amazing thing because before this, I would have walked past that block and even thought twice. So it, it does make you use your time in a way that's more meaningful. Yeah. Does that make sense? So. It definitely makes you appreciate the, the parts of your city that are generally unknown. Mm -hmm. like I, I love that, that I know more about my city, the things that most tourists or most locals don't know about my city, right. and I appreciate those things. I, I love that. George, I, I'm 54 years old. Until we found the Cleveland treasure, I had never been to Ellis Island. I had never been to the Statue of Liberty, right? For all the friends who come to really? town, I'd never been. Like, you grew up here and you kind of took it for granted. I'd always seen it. I worked in Jersey City for God's sake. I'd see Lady Liberty with the, you know, but I'd never been there. And then I remember after we found Cleveland, Brian and I one day said, let's play hooky from work. And I don't know how we got out of it. We took off and we went over and took the ferry over to Ellis Island. Right. And then we took the ferry over to the Statue of Liberty and I stood underneath it and just marveled at it. And it's so strange to me that, but for this, I, I maybe I never would have gone. And it was right in my own backyard. So even the things we take for granted, right? Because of this, it gives us reason to invest the time and the interest. Yeah, I have a very similar um, experience. Uh, I was in North Carolina for 20 years. And part of the public education there, they teach you about the lost colony, about Roanoke Island. It's something you learn. And it's something, and the Wright Brothers Memorial, um, first in flight. And you take that for granted. I'd never taken a trip to the Outer Banks. I've been to the beach plenty of times, never specifically to the Outer Banks to see those historical sites. But because of this hunt that you guys put together, uh, it gave me a motivation to go out and explore these places I've never been and just really appreciate the history of the areas that are around me. And that's branched out to San Francisco, to St. Augustine. Now I'm here in New York learning about the history of New York. Uh, we took a, um, a cruise that kind of circled the island. Um, and there's so much I had no idea about that I would never have learned if I wouldn't have come up here for this meetup. Um, anybody in the audience, raise your hand if you have learned something about the city that you live in that you would never have known if it wasn't for the hunt. There it is. So, thank you yes. so much. But it also, it also distorts things a little. Because I remember when I was on vacation uh, in North Carolina years ago, my kids were much younger. It had to be 10 years ago and we're standing at the Wright Brothers Monument. And it's fantastic, I'm trying to explain this. This is where the first plane flew. We're at Kitty Hawk, right? Right. And I, and I walk up and I see by dauntless and unconquerable determination. And I, you know, to me, I'm like, oh, 
died, right? By Domus, an inconquerable determination. And I'm explaining to my kids, that's the line from The Secret. He stood right here and so So like, it's kind of cool that they flew the first plane, but there's also this other cool thing here that took place and my kids were like, oh yeah, flight's interesting, but the treasure hunt, right? So it, it, it gives it more layers to the onion and it, it gives you more things to look at that, you know, it makes everything that much more interesting. So do you think that when the Wright brothers flew their first plane, <laughs> they ever think there would be frequent flyer miles? <laughs> <laughs> or that they would be upstaged by a book written in that Right, exactly. <laughs> but let me ask you this, the last one more question, and then we'll just open it up to everybody else. Um, I talked to a bunch of Byron's friends, especially William Stout. I don't know if you know William Stout. Sure. He told me, and basically everybody that I've spoken to that's known Byron, that this... To them, this is the last thing Byron would do. William said that Byron wasn't adventurous, and to picture him in his three-piece suit, absolutely, New York guy, <laughs> going to a park somewhere in the middle of some city, digging a hole and burying his treasure, it was not like him at all. Absolutely right. Yeah. It was not Byron at all. So what do you think the motivation behind this was? I, I cannot begin to tell you. Um, Byron... What I remember most about Byron, as a friend, especially once we had kids, he would never come to my house without a comic book for my kids. Mm. Never. He taught kids in Philadelphia. When he was a, a student at the University of Pennsylvania, he set up a, a, a nonprofit to teach kids in the ghettos how to read. And he taught them how to read with comic books, because his philosophy was, I don't care what they read, as long as they read. I don't care if it's a comic book, if it's, if it's uh, you know, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm -hmm. I want kids to read. And he got my younger son, especially, my son is such a reader now, and I owe it all to, all to Byron. Mm. And see, when I was at uh, that show last week with Josh Gates, a young man stood up in the audience, 13 years old, his name is Frank, and he was explaining how he had solved Charleston, he's sure of it, and he, he got a 14, 15 page sort of manifesto to him to read, and it was adorable, it's great, but I wound up talking to him after the show, and he said, you know, I've been home during the pandemic, and I didn't have a lot to do, and kids are feeling so much anxiety, and, and there's so much going on, and he got hooked on The Secret. And he was reading and researching and using the time in a positive, productive way and came up with this entire solve. And I looked at him and I go, what a good kid you are. And what a fascinating thing that you did because, you know, instead of uh, retreating into himself or like he used the time productively in an hour with the internet, he was able to research all kinds of things. And he came up with an entirely plausible and great solve. So 13 years old. And I just said to him, I hope you find it. I hope, you, I hope you get the feeling, the exhilaration of shovel to ground and that clink, right? Because you work through it. And if you don't, that's okay too because the journey is probably the best part. Um, but it, it was so interesting to me that he was a kid who's 13 and look what he did because of this simple book, yeah. right? This yeah. probably got him through a time that was really otherwise very difficult for him. Yeah, for every uh, every empty hole, 
Um, it, to me, it's a marker of a time spent with a friend or an adventure um, out in the world. So, I mean, as many empty holes as I can dig, I'm down for it. That's great. Um, ben, That's great. if you can talk to us a little bit. Uh, we have some photographers in the community. Um, okay. If you could talk to us about the process um, and how that worked back in 1982, uh, from taking a photo uh, and then you know all the way to having that printed in the book. Okay, so I had two cameras, which film obviously in those days. I had one Nikon with black and white film, and one with 35 millimeter slide film. And any anything I shot was shot black and white and with 35 millimeter slides. Unfortunately, Bantam uh, cut the budget, and obviously the, the illustrations were going to be in you know, Technicolor, mm. and I got put mostly in black and white, and, uh, but I shot everything in color, everything in black and white, and uh, I tried to shoot pretty, you know, I tried to make everything exactly the same, it's a little difficult. I didn't use a tripod. I, I've never been into tripods. I like just holding a camera and taking the picture. But I was able to do it. Uh, the problem was is that when I got, I gave all the artwork to Bantam, and unfortunately, when I got most of the stuff back, I got all the black and white pictures, all the negatives. Well, I, I had the negatives. I gave them black and white prints. Unfortunately, most of the color I never got back. Uh, Byron was never able to explain it. He felt awful about it. It sort of got lost. I do have some of the color, which is outstanding. I wish it was all in color, but unfortunately, that's the way it is in book publishing. You know, it's my pictures were not as important as the illustrations were. Mm. And I, I understood that. And I, you know, so I have some of the slides. Um, I'm considering possibly putting some of the pictures on my website to sell. I'm not quite sure yet what I'm going to do. So, uh, yeah, there's a little bit of interest there. There's, there's some interest, okay. Uh, let, them, okay. let them know what your website is. I kind of I feel badly that a lot of this stuff is lost. Uh, I know I don't have it. I have about maybe 25 or 30 slides. Um, some really good ones, but unfortunately some of the really good ones I don't have. Uh, I don't think Bantam stole them or anything like that. I just think Byron was very disorganized <laughs> in his life um, when it comes to things like that. Um, it could be somewhere. I have no idea. But I, I, that could be another book, looking for the slides. I don't know. But I do have some of them, and I'm hoping to have them up on my website maybe in a month or two, which is shopart.benason.com. Uh, I'll probably do a limited edition. I'm discussing that with Byron's wife, Sandy, now. And part of the proceeds of that will go to a charity that Byron was very, very dear to. I can't think of the name of the charity, but it had to do with reading for kids. Mm. Byron was so into helping kids read, especially kids that came from one-parent families that never could buy a book, and Byron thought that was awful. He was so into having kids read. Reading, is, he thought, was the most important thing in anybody's life. So we'll do that probably in the next few months, I'm hoping. And that website again? Is uh, shopart.benason.com. If you go to that website, you can sign up for Ben's newsletter as well. 
That's right. You get 20% off your first order. Thank you. No, absolutely. No, he has such fabulous work there. Um, you really yeah. need to check that out. Secret or not, you need to check out his work. It's Thank amazing. I, I lied. I said I have no more questions, but I have one. So if you, all, if you don't mind. Um, there's a lot of people in the community that dig in into super fine details in this book. Um, and one thing that comes up a lot is how much Byron, how much input Byron had in different things. How much input did Byron have in your photos? Because I, and I say, I, I, I'll lead into that saying that people have found the uh, the fence where you took that that uh, the, the photo of the uh, I forget her name. She's got a tower on her head. People have found that fence. People have found the corner. That's actually in Kendall, Florida. Yep. That is north of Miami. I have a lot of family in Miami. My son went to University of Miami. And uh, I was actually going to um, um, uh, a barbecue place uh, to have ribs. And we, had, and we had the sculpture with us. And my uncle said, go to Kendall. Kendall's this new area of Florida. It's going to be really going to be building tons of houses there. There's all this empty property there. And we went, it was actually called Shorty's Ribs. And if you're ever in Miami, you gotta go to Shorty's Ribs because I gotta tell you, the best ribs I've ever had in my entire life. And I've been going there since I'm seven years old because my family, I have a lot of family that raised their family in Miami. But so we went there and we shot it in front of this fence that was, and we shot the sculpture in front of, in Kendall. Kendall's, Kendall was like just farmland. It was chickens and hens and ducks and eggs, and now it's a—it's all condominiums and houses. It's—it's it's crazy, absolutely crazy. But so I didn't. Byron didn't give me a lot of help. He just said, "You go to San Francisco, take the frog with it with a saxophone and shoot it somewhere. Shoot one picture in front of Tower Records. I had never heard of Tower Records." Tower Records was a big record store in LA and San Francisco. They finally moved to Greenwich Village, and they're long gone. L By the way, LPs are not sold that much anymore. Um, it's mostly on Spotify now. But so I shot that in front of Tower Records. I shot a picture in, uh, of a vintage car with the Elvis Presley sculpture in front of a fender of a vintage car. Uh, he didn't give me a lot of help. He just said, you're going to Washington, you're going to Florida, you're going to, you know, San Francisco. Take the sculptures with you. I always took them in a shopping bag. Nobody ever looked at the shopping bag. I just took it to, sh to San Francisco and shot it and came up with a couple of ideas. My wife would help me. My wife's legs, by the way, are in a picture in front of Brooks Brothers. <laughs> That's right. We needed we needed a woman, <laughs> so she was pretty young then, very young then, and I she's in the picture. I have a couple. Of my kids are in some of the pictures, but he didn't give me a lot of help. He really didn't. He said just go. He just whatever you think is good, do it, and that's what I did. That so, seems to be a lot of the. So if I can just give him a plug, um, I just saw some of the color pictures for the first time. And, and for those who, the only thing I can liken it to is the Wizard of Oz, right? When you start in black and white and then she lands in Oz and, and you see Technicolor for the first time in 1939, right? Right. They're so extraordinary. And I, I imagine if Bantam had made the smarter decision and gone with the color prints, so many. Let me see if I can show that right there. You want to hold that up, Andy, maybe? 
it's unbelievable. And it's not going to do it justice, right? But they're incredible. And I think more, I'm going to glare, more time would have been spent by people looking at the rest of the book and finding meaning in these pictures because the artistry and the colors are just this is crazy the beautiful. This is the boogeyman in San Francisco. So somebody from the Facebook page actually drove to San Francisco. There's a, there was a sign in one of the other pictures that had the name of the street, and they figured out exactly what house this was filmed in on a back porch of my friend Bill's house in San Francisco in 1982. There was no GPS, there was no Google Maps, there was no Waze, and they figured it out where this was photographed. Yeah, they, went, they went to his house, right? What's that? They, they went, went to his, to his house. house. <laughs> but he's not there because he got divorced. His wife got the house. Uh, so he's not there anymore. Thanks for that, Sergers, by the way. Right. But I mean, if you're a fan of this, like the artistry, it wasn't just the making of the cast. Oh, yeah. Joel and his, so and there's another one. There's another one. Oh, Monty Irvine. I have. Here's Monty Irvine. I have. So this is Monty Irvin. Yes. If you don't know, Monty Irvin was the first black baseball player signed with the Giants. But didn't he play for the New York Giants? He played for the New York Giants. How'd you get him to put on the San Francisco Giants? Well, Byron went out and bought a jersey. That's what I was gonna ask. We went to Byron's apartment on East 63rd Street, off uh, between 2nd and 3rd Avenue, and I said, are you paying him? No, I'm buying him a pastrami sandwich at P.J. Bernstein's Delicatessen, which was on 3rd Avenue. Monty was great. Monty was the second player, second black player signed in Major League Baseball. Wow. First it was uh, Jackie Robinson, and then it was Monty Irvin, and then I believe came a guy named Willie Mays, if you know who Willie Mays is. And Monty worked for Major League Baseball, he was in uh, management there, and he agreed to do it for nothing, just for a pastrami sandwich. That's so, awesome. Yeah, I'm sure pro athletes would do that today. Yeah, right, they would, you know, that's very true, you know, you know it's called playing baseball, not working. Right. So, I mean. Right. Uh, What's that? Yeah. No, car with like a fatty melt. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. So I was, I was saying that um, the amount of artistry, right? Like you appreciate the verses and you appreciate that the illustrations are, are gorgeous, just gorgeous. And, and you could look at them and, and for those who have the reproductions, they're great. We have some of the original copies. I have an original book here. And I, I got to talk to some really nice people earlier uh, Max and a couple others, and, and they looked at, oh my God, like you can't believe what the original books look like. They're incredible. Also makes the job that you're doing so much harder, and I respect it so much more because it's easier, I think, when you have the original, you know, as opposed to the reproductions, because there's a lot more clarity. But then you look at the photography and the artistry that went into that, and you look at what Joella, Joella made. And I, and I brought with me today, if anybody wants to see. Oh, look at this. This now. is oh, my, my piece of the, the cast from oh, Cleveland. Um, it was, it's in this little sort of hockey puck thing. I'll hold it up here. Um, the nice part of this is when, after we found the cast, and it, was, it had been broken over time, um, Brian gave me a piece. This is the only piece that had retained its color, I think, over the many, many years. 
um, the box had collapsed under the weight of time, right. and it was caked over with dirt, and a lot of it had oxidized and, and turned white. This one piece, again, I don't know if I can get it, was the inside of the lid, and had the color to it, and I was very drawn to it. And, uh, and he was sweet enough to give it to me, and again, some of you may have heard this before, but has a really wonderful plaque on it that says May 8, 2004, the secret good friends are more difficult to find than buried treasure. And I think that goes for everybody here today, because uh, whether we're just meeting you for the first time, or you got these guys who are just killing it with this podcast, uh, we're all friends because of a, a mutual interest. And, and this is a bit of what that history is. And so whether you were photographing it, and the stories behind every picture are unbelievable. I could sit with him and listen to his stories, every picture, right? Or, or the cast and how they were made, um, there was so much love and artistry and expertise that went into this. I'm not surprised people are still talking about it after 40 years. I'm just surprised only three of them found. Um, and I'm sure that somebody asked me earlier, will any not be found? Yeah, I think that probably some will. I, I, I imagine, you know, somebody said to me today, what, which ones do you not think will be found? I think, I fear New Orleans may have been lost because of the hurricanes. Yeah. No one could predict the natural disasters in the flood, sure. right? But I think, I'm sure, that another three, four, five, six will be found. And it'll come because of sharing in communities like this. It, it, there's a collective find to it. Um, so I, 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 I sort of dislike, oh, it's my theory, but you know, I, I think when one is found, it, it's a find for everybody. And again, it becomes another remembrance and testament to the other person who we all lost, which was Byron. And uh, he created a legacy that keeps us looking and keeps us happy. And uh, it's an important thing that we're all still doing. So cheers to all of you for showing the interest. It's, it's been a great 20 years for me since finding it. And, uh, and I'm still looking. And, and I think all of you and your lives are richer for your journey. So um, my toast to all of you. Yes. Uh, and I'm sure all of the stuff will be out for everybody to check out later. Also, um, one other thing that, that, that didn't come, it was, it was in Byron's meetup, was the plexiglass talks. Um, there's two long-term, very, very revered hunters uh, that most people don't know. Their names are Amy Kim, they came today. Um, years and years and years ago, they went back to Brian and Andy's spot, back way before Expedition of Nome, because they knew that Brian and Andy's cast was broken, and that Byron had Brian and all pieces. And they wanted it. Uh, so they dug around and they didn't find any of the casting. They found the plexiglass. The plexiglass for these casts are very, very unique. The easiest way to figure out if somebody, uh, there's a lot of things, right? There's a lot of people that pop up and say, I've done this up. And they generally have a plexiglass. And the easiest way to tell if something's a fake is because the plexiglass is pretty easy. They have a piece of plexiglass. It's in a, it's in a bag. They're not going to bring out. It's still kind of dirty, uh, but they've agreed to let people check that out too, just so you can see it's, it's really, it's just different. Um, so, uh, Speaking of friends found in the hunt, uh, one of our dear friends and co-hosts, Brett, could not be here today. He is watching live. Um, so, hey, Brett, we miss you. Um, but uh, just wanted he to say that. To come. Oh. He was just like, I don't, I don't like you guys. No. I but this is kind of cool, just because you mentioned it, I'm sorry. Like, this is the first time I got to meet these guys live. First time I got to meet Ben live. When I went on the podcast with him, I was such a fan. Because his stories were so fantastic. 
Like I couldn't get enough of it, right? And and these guys, they work. I'll, I'll pop it on. I'll be looking at it. My wife's like, really? I'm watching another podcast. I go, it's always something new. And it's always something interesting. But the, the ladies here, yeah, I was reading their posts on Quest for Treasure 20 years ago. And I marveled 20 years ago. Oh my gosh. Yeah, they, they do. Right? It, it was so... They were at the, at the forefront of this stuff, you know, before everybody was so internet crazy, and they were writing things and figuring things out. When we hadn't matched locations with verses, when we were trying to figure out which gemstone was which month, and, uh, and I got to meet them today for the first time, and they're like, oh my God, you're on TV. I go, who cares? Oh my God, you're the people who used to read your, your posts. 20 years ago, and uh, you know, I don't want to autograph your book, I want you to autograph mine. That's how influential and, and, and uh, inspirational they were. And the thing I find about this hunt is, as nice, if not nicer, than inspirational as I found them to be, right? Everybody is just a good person when they bring this. So I'm so glad you came into town. I told you earlier today, that was one of the highlights of coming today, was to get a chance to meet both of you. So yeah. really, yeah. forefront treasure. I can't emphasize that enough. A yeah. lot of people who came in after Expedition Unknown idolized Ryan Candy. The people who were in Quest for Treasure idolized people like Amy Wood, Amy Wood. Yeah. I yeah. wouldn't be where I am today without Amy yeah. Uh, Nadine and Kim, they took a break from the treasure hunt for a couple of years. They were the people I saw. <laughs> they, I wanted their approval. I wanted their research. They were, it, it, they're just the, the, they're, they're everyone's favorite treasure hunters. They are. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, ladies. Yes. Oh, shucks. Oh, you guys are the best. You guys are the best. I wasn't listening. What were you guys saying? <laughs> <laughs> So we'll open up. Does anybody have any questions for Ben or for Amy? Raise your hand if you have a question. Uh, Go ahead. Yes. Tim, Tim right? Yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, so you, Mr. Ben, you were saying that you were taking the, most of the photos for the dolls. We call them soft sculptures. That's what Thorellen oh, okay. liked to call them. Soft sculptures. Soft sculptures. Right. And somebody noticed that most of them were taken along Broadway. Along where? Broadway. A lot of the locations that the book references in the uh, acknowledgement section were taken along Broadway. Not that many, really. Really? Uh, I believe so. I think there's like six or eight of them okay. that were taken along okay. that way. Okay. Was there a particular reason why you chose those locations? Like, was Mr. Price like directing you towards a specific? No, I've always been a Broadway fan. So I mean. Um, Broadway is is New York, so. Didn't you say once the only real location in New York he, he absolutely had to have was the, the photo on the steps because it mimicked a newspaper? Yes. Article? Yeah, there was some newspaper article. Yeah. Wait, are you talking about the one? Yes, you're talking about the, the one. Business. The small businessman. Yeah. That actually was not a businessman. That was a lawyer. Yeah. Right. He was a famous famous right. malpractice attorney. Right. I can't think of the guy's name now, <laughs> but there was a picture of this guy on the steps. Of, six, of 60 Center Street, yes. and I actually saw the photograph, and we took this old man sculpture with the, with the attaché case, right. walking down the steps. I said, I'm going to do it exactly the yes. way. It might have been the Daily News or the Post, I can't remember. Uh, and I, I just recreated that photograph yeah. with a soft sculpture. Uh, his name was Tillis or something? I can't remember. But he was a very famous malpractice attorney. Yeah, it's a great shot. Yeah, yeah thank you. It was, it was a lot of fun doing that. Um, 
Those are the same steps, by the way, that Sam Waterston and from Law and Order, you know, used to walk down those steps from Law and Order. So. So for our, for our listeners at home, we're just going to repeat the question so people can hear it. Um, there are a lot of pop cultural references, and what was the demarcation um, where it was past the point where the book is being edited and being produced, where they would not have been able to be included? Is that correct? Yeah, uh, what was a good book actually? What was the timeline? And so just to follow up on that, so in one of your photos you took at a newsstand, there was a doll sitting on some magazines. Right. And Cheryl, is Cheryl Teagues in that photograph? I don't remember. On People Magazine? I think it's like it was, a couple of people. It was something like that. But we were able to trace that to like April of the year it was printed. It was just a few months before the that book came was out. Yeah. yeah, I think that was a picture that we had to redo or something, if I remember correctly. And Byron and I went to a newsstand and we just, we just, we asked the guy who was a newsstand, can we shoot this soft sculpture? He said, yeah, sure, go ahead. Uh, <laughs> you know, nobody ever said no to me. When I did, I mean, it's incredible. Now, everybody would be so superstitious and so suspicious of what you were doing. In those days, taking the, taking the right wing and the left wing eagle, which is pretty interesting considering what's going on politically now, that <laughs> Byron had this idea about a, a left wing and a right wing. Um, Nobody ever asks any questions. We would just go, take the sculpture. Can we shoot this here? Sure, go ahead, shoot it, go ahead. Yeah, sure. Because nobody ever thought it was important. When, um, yeah, for a little bit of a this. How long before publishing did it, when was it basically wrapped up? Like, for reshoot, it was, it was okay. Reshoot. So I shot most of it, actually, in 1981. Okay. Okay. But a few pictures got done into early 82. I remember going to my sister-in-law's uh, place in LA with my wife, and we shot a Tower Records thing there, then we shot a Tower Records thing in San Francisco, because we went up to visit my friend Bill, is where we shot The Frog, which is uh, the boogeyman playing the saxophone, which was great. I love that, uh, I love that soft sculpture. It's a great soft sculpture, it's really. Joellen is so talented. She used to show her work on Madison Avenue. I don't know if anyone knows uh, the actor Jim Dale, who was in Barnum on yes. Broadway. Yes. Jim's wife owned a gallery on Madison Avenue, and Joellen sold a lot of her soft sculptures huh. in that in that art gallery and yeah. sold for a lot of money. Really famous clients, like I think Robin Williams bought. Robin Williams so bought a couple of her soft we, sculptures. Yeah. We, we bought one of them. Yeah, Robin yeah, Williams. yeah. I know. What's that? He bought a Robin Williams sculpture. Oh, he bought a Robin Williams sculpture. One of Joe no Ellen's kidding. sculptures that Joe, Robin Williams' estate. Joe Ellen is so talented. She just underestimates her, her creativity. She's amazing. Absolutely amazing. She's very talented, very kind. Very, very talented. Extremely talented. Yes. So, um, I'm curious about the areas that are, I guess, on the freeway right now. A lot of people think about possibly. Do you have any hints, Ben? <laughs> <laughs> well, we, you know, we did love Prospect Park. It was only about maybe a mile from where we lived on Glenwood Road in Brooklyn. So Byron lived, 
I moved to the street where Byron lived when I was about 14 or 15. So Byron, Byron and my brother Michael were in school together. They were about three, four years younger than I was. And uh, they were friendly. I was not that friendly with Byron as a young kid. We became friendly as adults because our fathers were friendly. And I think my father might have said to Byron's father, hey, you know, Ben's a photographer. Oh, Ben's a photographer. I got to give him a call. And uh, I didn't work in this. I worked in other books before The Secret. Uh, I worked on a Beach Boy book, which was Byron's favorite group of all time. If anyone doesn't know that, the Beach Boys were like his, that was his group, the Beach Boys. Um, so, um, Going back to the question, Prospect Park, definitely Coney Island. Uh, we spent a lot of time at a place called Marty's, which was a luncheonette that made the best chocolate malteds in the world for 35 cents in the day. Um, that's, and there was a, a Ed and Rudy's. Ed and Rudy's was on Coney Island Avenue. It was a, it was a candy store, and we bought all our comic books there. Byron was a Superman freak, action comic books. He bought them all. I think Byron actually owned the first or second copy of the action comics, which is where they introduced a guy named Superman, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I was not as smart as he was. Um, that's all I can tell you. I mean... He worked out of an office. Well, it's funny. When I first got friendly with Byron again, he sublet an office on 57th or 58th Street from a, an attorney. And this attorney had a duplex office. And he had a fire pole, George. And this guy nice. was probably in his 60s. He would go from one floor to another, sliding down the fire pole. <laughs> I don't think Byron ever did that. I never did it, that's for sure. And then, then in the uh, early 80s, Byron took an office on 25th Street in the Flatiron District between 5th and 6th Avenue. And that's where his office was for many, many years. In fact, that was his only other office was there. So uh, a lot of the stories that we hear are second, third, fourth hand. Um, and one story that uh, we'd love to hear from Brian and Andy uh, is about Brian's, uh, about uh, Byron's actual office and the aesthetic of the office. Yes, yes. Um, and could you talk about it and then can you lend any credence to why it was decorated in such a fashion? So my memory of it was, and I remember we drove in, it took a, after we found it, we called him the next week and there was this excitement and then there was the needing to set a date that we could all get together. And it took a few weeks, I remember. But when we finally got in, we got to the office, and we got out of the elevator, and my memory is the whole sort of room there yeah. was silver. It was, it was yes. just like, and it, it, it looked like something out of Willy Wonka. It was, yeah. it was very odd, and you couldn't tell where the door was or where somebody was gonna come from. And I remember one sort of door moved open, and he came out, and was. Very cool blazer and cool shirt, and and it was very, it was very wacky and hip, and not what I expected it to be. I thought it was going to be just sort of a normal office, yeah. and uh, and he had. I remember Brian saying he had sort of a, I don't want to say a mad scientist. You you described him as as being sort of, uh, eccentric. yeah, eccentric or right like. I, but I remember walking and going, 
where are we and where's the fizzy lifting drink? Like, yeah. this is an odd feeling, so. He wasn't eccentric, he was disorganized. Disorganized, definitely. He, his desk, <laughs> I cannot begin to tell you what his desk was like. It was like just piles and piles of papers and books and contracts and agreements with different artists and authors. And I mean, he, he would, I did, I did a job for him for the Beach Boys and I gave him four eight by 10 photographs for the book. Couldn't find them. I go to his apartment the day we're photographing Monty Irvin. And he goes, he's taking a shower in his apartment. And I'm sitting at his desk. I'm like looking like, what is this crap here? You know? I found the four eight by 10 <laughs> photographs that he said he lost and I had to reprint them again. I said, Byron, they're right here. Oh yeah, right, okay. <laughs> That's just the way he was. You know, a lot of brilliant people are not yes. that, that organized. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and he told us, and this is right from his mouth, he told us when we went in that day, you know, we went to a, a bank to go to a safe deposit box so that he could retrieve the gemstone for Brian. And we said to him, oh my God, the, and he's rummaging through, and we hear him go, oh, there's the ruby, there's that, he's all excited. He was right on the other side of the cubicle um, going through them. And he said, oh, are the we felt like, oh my God, are the solution's right there. And he said, no, 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 he said, I, I think I have the solutions. Um, they're folded up. And they're probably in one of the pockets of one of my suits in my closet at home. So it wasn't even like it was in a, a folder, you know, called the Secret Solutions where you could go and retrieve it. He just thought he had them yeah. in a pocket, in a suit, hanging in his closet. And yeah. so, yeah. you know, we, we said, and I tell the story, when, when, he, um, when he passed away, it turned out I had a friend who, uh, my college roommate's wife, uh, worked with... Byron's wife for years. We never made the connection. Okay. Yeah, Sandy and my friend uh, Wendy worked with her. And we were talking one day and I said, oh my God. And she said, I'm going to pay respects tonight uh, at this shiver call for someone who just died. I said, oh, we died. And she said, a friend of mine, her husband, he was in the publishing industry. And I said, who? And I knew Byron had died. And, and she said, oh, Sandy, medicine, is, um, husband was Byron. And I said, Price? And she said, yeah, how'd you know that? And I said, that's the guy who wrote the book that I went on the treasure hunt. And, and it was just such an odd connection. So this is an awful story. But Brian. <laughs> it is. Brian. No, no, no. So Brian calls me. And I tell this to Brian. And Brian goes, wait, you're friends with, you know, he makes the connection. He goes, you got to go to that chivalcal. And I go, what? He goes, you got to go. And I said, no. He goes, Go with your friend Wendy as like her date, and I go. I'm absolutely not crashing a shiver call. That's awful. So he said, "But Andy, remember what he told us? It's probably in one of his suit pockets." In his, and he said, "So what you got to do is you you're probably there. I'm sure, right?" So he, he said, "You got to get in, and you got to kind of get to his closet." And Brian was denied us, and kind of see if he can reach his. And he goes, "Think of the alternatives." The, the, you know, his spouse is probably going to clear out his closet and, and it'll all go to goodwill and someday there's going to be a, a, a man, a homeless person walking down the street in a really nice suit with the solutions to all of these puzzles. And he goes, you can't, and I said, and there was, I remember there was a moment where I'm like, Should I? and I said, oh God, absolutely not. So we never went, but I do remember him telling us, I have the solutions, they're probably folded up in a pocket, hanging 
in my walk-in closet. And, and aside that, there was a mythic, sort of a mythical story. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows where it started, but I know I heard it before I heard that story from you. That one time saying he was going to Myers Close, found it was the city's in a pocket. So that is, that is one of the second, third, fourth, fifth person stories that we've heard. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Where that started. Yeah. Who else has questions? Yes, yes. So you might know that. Do you know why you picked the city standards? You're asking me a question that I've been asked probably a thousand <laughs> times. I don't have a clue. There was no method? No. No. He, he never. We never. I have to. You have to understand something. I finished this project and I never thought about it again until like two and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you this then. During the John Michaels podcast, there yes. was something that everybody picked. John Michaels does a bit of Christmas special for you. Right. And you were on it this past year and you said something that John sort of glossed over, but people have focused on a lot. You said. Byron was very interested in the Civil War. He was. Would you like to expand on that? No, he, um... <laughs> he, uh, as we all run off to Gettysburg. <laughs> Byron, did a, Byron did a history book for kids that was sort of like 250 pages. It was the entire history of America. And like, I, I forgot the title of the book. I think I have a copy of it at home. It's a great book. It really is a great book. Jimmy knows. Jimmy's like, I've got it in my library. Yeah, and what's it called? Do you know the name? It's called History. That's right. And he, I mean, he covered the entire history of America like in 250 pages. Um, Amazon the, is blowing The up Civil right War was just something that he was interested in. But I was interested in the Civil War too. So I, I, I can't tell you why, really. I mean, I, re I really can't. I really can't. I, I wish I could have an answer for you, well, but... Well, so, the reason I ask is because a lot of people, even way before you said that, tied a lot of solutions to Civil War uh, sites and, and Civil War stories, especially monuments, in places like Charleston, where they're coming down. Right, and um, Teddy Roosevelt, I mean, he was really into Teddy Roosevelt. I think he was, I think he was disappointed that he didn't do one of the really big Teddy, there's some great Teddy Roosevelt biographies. You probably know, Andy. I've read them, and uh, I think he wishes he had been involved in a Teddy Roosevelt biography. And there's a, there's a Teddy Roosevelt soft sculpture, right? There and, is, in the, book. in the book, yes. And I remember for the longest time, you go through waves of excitement. And I remember at um, Hymn of Hard Words, and I remember one day, Probably talking to somebody or in the shower, like thinking and going, ooh, Teddy Roosevelt, Rough Riders, mm -hmm. Hard Word. And I became obsessed with this idea to have Teddy Roosevelt. And we looked in, in, in uh, Brooklyn and near Coney Island, there was a park that had some plaque or something about Teddy Roosevelt. And you would photograph the picture of one of the soft sculptures in That's front right. of the Teddy Roosevelt right. yeah. uh, memorial or mansion yeah. where he was. And right. all this stuff made so much sense. So even when you say that, I, I get some goosebumps and I'm like, wait, let me check my book for a second. So yeah, yeah, that's yeah. interesting. And yeah. Speaking of Joellen Trilling's work, um, she doesn't only do soft sculptures, she does a variety of art. And you can check her out at joellentrilling.com. Um, and see all of her work there as well. No, no, it's just there to see her work. Um, it's not for sale, but it's just to see her work, it's amazing. Um, and it's a lot of different mediums. 
JoellenTrilling.com. Yeah. She's very talented. Incredible. Extreme, extremely talented. And she does a lot of work with cats, which if anybody that watches the podcast knows, I absolutely adore. <laughs> so. Yes. So, um, I have a question. In the podcast interview with Mr. Alan Carr, he makes mention of uh, random info dumps that Byron had given him that was burning in his, uh, whatever, his apartment. To your knowledge, were any photographs you, take, you took connected to those info dumps? No. I have no, I have no knowledge of that at all. Yeah, Joellen really. used to say the same thing. She said that uh, when she was creating the sculpture, she would get Manila figures with mythical figures, right? Like mythical beasts, like their their history and their description and stuff. Right. She was supposed to incorporate that, but it really it sounds like you just hands off completely with the images. Hands off. Most of the projects I did with Byron were pretty hands off. He he just. He thought I could just come up with the great ideas. I sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't come come up with the best ideas. Yeah. Uh, most publishers, I, I worked with a lot of publishers over the years. I did a book called Dare to Be Dull, which is about the, the dull persons, uh, and everything in that book was lined out for me exactly what I had to photograph. Byron did not do that. He <laughs> just left it up to me. Well, I mean, and, and that kind of goes with what John Palancar said in the past too. He he said that. I believe Byron saw the images that he was painting once right. before they were finished, and he only saw a couple. Yeah. He said he would get a little bit of information from Byron, and he would put it in the paintings, but it's not like now where you can snap a picture of it and text it over Byron. Exactly. So, is this okay? Exactly. The paintings were basically done. I mean, I'm thinking that if I had shot this book now, and Byron was alive, I'd be emailing him pictures. All right, Byron, is this, is this the right way you want it, you know? Which, in some ways, I'm glad I didn't have to do that because it would have been like just a lot harder to do. I just, I, I knew exactly what he wanted. He, he told me, I want a picture of the eagles in front of the Capitol. What's, I mean, yeah, that's not, there's not, not that difficult to do, really. And so a lot of people, a lot of people go back to the genesis of the book and did it relate to the book, The Master that was popular in England and you know, it was one treasure, but it was a very expensive treasure, and I think there was a, a period where that was popular, right? Yeah. That, that people were into it. And I remember Brian uh, sort of fixated on 1976. There's so many things that relate to 1976, and the, um, the at the Smithsonian, that they did a, uh, and this is all speculation means zero, nothing, but that there was an exhibit at the Smithsonian 76 that was uh, popularizing uh, this book that had come out, abroad, was it Abroad in America? Abroad in America. And there were a number of, uh, uh, there were a number of authors who were uh, bits and pieces of their work. And as it came to light, so many of the authors were then referenced in one way or another in The Secret. And um, I remember ordering a copy of the Born American. Oh my God, so much of it is so dull. But I read through so much of it thinking, I wonder if there's something in here. And, and we've long thought, you know, in terms of the genesis of this, he's probably just a young man who had literary interests, obviously, maybe went down to Washington, D.C. and saw this incredible exhibit at the Smithsonian 76 and all these different authors and Dickens and Melville and, and Sarmiento and, you know, and, and said, I want to do something 
that's fun, right? right, right, right. Books that relates to what was popular, this treasure hunt. And right. he took all of this and created a project that maybe wasn't necessarily his comfort zone. But I remember when we met with him and asked him, and he said, oh, I used to take my fold-up shovel, and I threw it in my backpack, and I'd get on a plane, and I'd go to a place, and I'd unfold the shovel and dig it and put it and done. And so I, I, I think that there were probably seeds or there was a genesis in that uh, time period, that in maybe 76 or so, and again, total speculation, but that ties to seeing this great testament to all of these literary geniuses and their perspectives on America, and then tied it to immigration, right. and created something that made people want to go out and look at national parks, and look at things that they might not have looked at. So I feel like Ryan was on track there, uh, and that there's probably a lot that came from that in terms of Genesis. But let me tell you something. What Byron loved doing, I remember going a lot with my kids and his daughters to the Brooklyn Museum. He would he would love take he if he was in a room with fifty adults and there were four kids, trust me, he'd be with the four kids. He really would. He loved getting feedback from kids, he loved teaching kids, he loved talking about reading and books with kids. And that's something that I'll always remember about Byron. Mm. He really, really, really loved doing that. Yeah. And then in a way, doesn't this kind of all come full circle to make all of us feel like big kids? Because like, I remember saying to my wife, at 40 years old, I was digging for buried treasure. At 40 years old, like when we're little and we're outside and we're digging for there or pretending to find buried treasure, like that's what we all want to do. Mm -hmm. You're nine, 10 years old and, and to be able to revisit that or revisit with our kids or our families or just do it is something that brings out the little kid in all of us. Right. And the hope that you could find something and that there are treasures buried that you might find. It's a... I think that touches on that, yeah. right? Yeah, so. it does. does. Yeah, this gives us all the opportunity to be the Goonies. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That's a scary mom, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, who were some of your early uh, photography influences? What are my, some of my early? Early photography influences. Before I met me, before I started before working with Byron? I'm going to tell you something. I went to college, um, for business finance, because my father told me that's what I should do. And I took, uh, I took photography in my senior year of college when the Vietnam War was on, and I had a low lottery number. Um, and the minute I put the paper into the developer and the image came up, I said, that's it. This is what I'm gonna do for a living. Um, I loved going out and just shooting black and white on the street. That was my big thing. Uh, right now, I, I do more urban art. I do a lot, a lot of pictures of New York City water towers and anything. Fire. I love fire escapes because fire escapes are going away because there, there are no more fire escapes anymore. You know, now buildings are fireproof. But um, I love just shooting people, doing portraits. Byron uh, had me do a couple of author shots, and then I was able to hook up with other book publishers and do a lot of author shots. Thanks to Byron, I got to photograph one of the greatest science fiction writers in the world, Isaac Asimov. Spent a whole day with him in his apartment and found out that he went to high school with my uncle. And Asimov, Asin, they were next to each other in their yearbook. And I never even knew that. I, I called my uncle up and said, 
you never told me you went to high school with Isaac Asimov. You said you never asked. <laughs> so I mean, uh, to me, photography is a way to explore New York and explore the world. Uh, this is probably the only day that I don't have a camera with me. I usually have a camera with me. An iPhone is not a camera, by the way. Uh, in, in spite of what you say. Um, but, but I am before you leave. You're going to give you a microphone and make you take a picture. Okay, all right. Okay. So you can have an Acer. You can have, have, an, have an Acer. <laughs> so back, back story. Ben loves water towers and I was in Chicago. And if you're standing at the burial site where, where Rob dug out his cask, you look, there's a building with this giant, gorgeous, mirrored water tower. And I, I was like, I'm going to take a little artsy picture of Ben. So I got behind some branches right, right, right. and I shot a picture and I sent it to him. And he's like, that's, that's not <laughs> You call this photography? Come on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to spray my camera phone and I'm pro now. So, <laughs> nice try. Nice try. What yeah. other questions do we have? Anything else? Yes. Uh, I was wondering, uh, do you know if he was uh, much of a fan, that Byron was much of a fan of like Tolkien or Lord of the Rings or anything like that? Seems to be kind of a... I, I have to say I'm not sure, but I would think he would have been. It's nothing that ever came up in any of our talks or anything, but I know, I could tell you this, when the second Star Wars movie came out, he calls me up and says, so my, my sons are Ivan and Harrison, his, his daughters are Blair and Cara. I don't think Blair went. He says, there's a 10 o'clock a.m. show, the opening day of Star Wars. We're going. <laughs> so we went to a coffee shop, we had our you know, breakfast, we stood in line and went to see Star Wars. What's that? It might have been, you know what? It, no, it couldn't have been 77. It might have been the second round of Star Wars because it was, it was probably like. Right. 80 was Empire Strikes Back. And I only remember that. So it has nothing to do with this, but I only remember that because my very best friend, my very best friend went. Friday night to see The Empire Strikes Back, and we were so excited. We had tickets Saturday morning. Right. And I remember my friend Ed, because you're watching this podcast. Yeah, Ed called me and said, oh my god, I got to see Empire Strikes Back. And I said, oh my god, that's great. He goes, you're not going to believe it. Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father. And I remember going, wait, you just ruined the entire thing for me before I saw it. So, Luke, I have your father. That was good. That was good. That's not the actual line. Yeah, yeah. I am your father. I am your father. Luke, I am your father. <laughs> <laughs> he never says Luke, I think he just says, I am your father. Sorry, I was going to say, I'm scared of Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> so, Andy. Um, I think there was one other question. Oh, oh, yeah, maybe we'll excuse yourself for a moment. Oh, Andy. Okay. The uh, 10 stone. So, yes. was it definitely the 10 stones at the bottom? Because I saw your video. Yes. Uh, like the ones on the bottom, or is it one the, the ones on the top? No, if you counting, if you, you can, yeah. I mean, if, if you stood there, like the bricks on the wall right here, yes. some were thin, yes. some were big, right? Thin ones at but, the top. but if you counted from the top to what hit the dirt, there were ten. So it, it ten down. Yeah, ten it was it was ten. Nine over. Ten down. Correct. Yes, thank you. So I, mean, I just want to clarify. No, absolutely. It was, and we were so happy because yeah, yeah. you know we I got the like six, we got the six steps, and the planter. We're like, 
oh, seventh, you can hop. Yeah. And I remember we did it, you know, and but then we got up there and I'm like, oh, please be 10 then, right? So it was one, two, one, two, three, four, five, six, and we, 10 was at the dirt level. Okay. So that's how we knew it was 10. Okay. So yeah, no, yes, so, absolutely. So uh, piggybacking off of that, I made a Cleveland video where I made a joke that Andy was just bored and spoken around. And he, he yelled at me, and he clarified. Uh, there was logic behind where he dug. And if you wouldn't mind explaining that. Yeah, I, and I, I said to George this morning, I'm sorry if I came off like No, 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 don't. It was, I, it was I did. It was, People it, should yell at me. It's fine. No, you know what? I think that when we started this a long time ago, um, I remember Brian went on to uh, Quest for Treasure, and he had Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes as his avatar, and I love Calvin and Hobbes, right? And so I went on as Hobbes, because I was sort of like his imaginary friend. Bang, and, right. right, well, yeah, and I wanted to be, and he Siskel used the name Siskel, and, oh, he used Egbert, so I used Siskel, so they're all kind of inside little stuff. So, um, of course, so we, uh, when we were there, you know, I, there was, I think it was maybe uh, just a perception that I was kind of either along for the ride. I mean, this was his baby. He was looking since he went to UPenn in, in 1980, and then he stopped, and then he found the book in his attic years later, and he started again, and then he got me involved, and we did it for a few years together. So I don't pretend to have been in since 1980, um, but it is helpful clearly to have an extra pair of eyes. So on that particular day, um, we were done. We had done everything we thought was right. Counted down, counted over, were where we were supposed to be. Remember, the names were, as, as I'm looking at the names were on this side of the wall. Yeah. We're now behind the wall, right? So as we're behind the wall, we come up, we dug to our spot and we're done. And again, this is just perspective in life. I'm sitting on that planter and we're exhausted and we're looking at our, our watch and we're going, we gotta leave in one hour to get home for Mother's Day and um, or our wives are gonna be furious. And I'm looking at the road, which was Liberty Boulevard and Martin Luther King, you know, and I said to him, you know, Brian, the 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 verse reads as the road curves, or beneath the countries as the road curves. And I said, we're in, in the Greek garden, Italian garden's right here, and the road curves this way, but you can only see it if you're facing this way. You know, the way we were counting it, our back was to the road. And it made sense because you had to hop up to get there. But I said, if we were looking through where the names were and you're looking down at the road, again, it's not like I was a genius. It wasn't the theory of relativity, but I just said, if we were facing this direction, the count is different. It takes you, counting over brings you to, like, right, we were here. And yeah. so the, doing it this way, the count brings you here and then matching it up the 10 steps down. So instead of where, you know, Rayleigh was sitting, it's where George was sitting. And it was almost equidistant. But it was, and I remember counting it going, it's going to be outside the road. It's going to be outside to some of the initiative. And when I counted it, I said, oh, we're three feet inside or two feet inside the plant on the other side. I said to him, you know, maybe it'll be this way. But if, we had, if I didn't sat on the planter in total despair, right? I don't know that the road would have been would have been so obvious, and that it was worth reconfiguring. So we did, and, and he, you know, it's it's absolutely true. He tossed me the poker and said, "Knock your socks off," and, and we were done. And I just started poking, and it's so ridiculous because how many of you have put poker to ground, right? How many put shovels to ground and dug, you know? And we could have, and on one side, he literally mythologically dug to China, right? So. 
We're on the other side, and it, it was as simple as that. It was one, two, and, and when we hit it, after spending six hours over here, and, and going one, two, like that, um, which I always joke, it's like the old Tootsie commercial, one, two, right? And, and he didn't believe. But I knew that the feeling was totally different than the roots we kept hitting all day, because there was nothing more for, you'd hit, oh my God, and then it's a root. So, and, and finding that plexiglass, which you're gonna have a piece of, and, and, and pulling that out, and going, oh my God, we, I, I think there's something here. And, and within a very short period, about 25, 30 minutes later, digging by hand because we didn't want to break anything, unearthing this thing, and, you know, you, you reach into the ground, and pull out a cast that was about this big, like this, and, and, and we got it out of the ground, covered in dirt, and, and inside it were these pieces of the ceramic. It was, it, was, it was so thrilling, and it was so, I mean, I wish every single person here has the experience of doing it. Again, the journey's great. Finding it like that was extraordinary, so, um, again, you know, you, you got to get lucky, but as I said to George earlier, if I hadn't gone with him, and, and, and we hadn't just kind of reconfigured it in that moment, I don't know that it gets found. So am I the smartest man alive? No. But did I get lucky enough to be sitting in a person, which is why for every theory you have, if you get a chance to get there and look it out, you know, sort of, like the boots on the ground aspect of it, and finding some piece, because most of these things, there's going to be a confirmer on site. Has to be, has to be. And once you do it and you, you know, put it together, it the rest was kind of history. So. I want to thank you for documenting that. Absolutely. You know what? That was that was one of the most fortuitous things because you know it wasn't an iPhone, it wasn't a, an Android that we just because now everybody. Yeah, it was. It was a little. You know, we had the, the camera, and I remember we bought it, which was so. Ridiculous that we actually thought we'd find it, right? But we bought it, what if? And I remember filming it all day for what? Because people would be, I didn't know that anybody would be interested. But we had it, and, and we had a we had a, 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 a writer from the Cleveland Plain Deal, who did a spectacular piece. He was fantastic. And we had a photographer. And the guy was taking pictures all day, and I told him earlier today, after about six hours, he left. His name was Martin, and Martin just couldn't take it anymore. And, and, and Chris kept writing, no matter what it was, he caught our despair, he caught our high moments, every joke, and when we finally found the plexiglass, and it was clear there was something, he got on the phone and said, Martin, get your ass back here, like, you, you gotta get back here. And Martin came running back, and he took these pictures of us taking it out of the ground, and I gotta tell you, it was like, you know, it was, it was pretty special. <laughs> so I, I'm glad I have it, because, to the extent it, it inspires anybody, right? I mean, there was nothing fake about it. Like, we got it and we found it, and that needle in that proverbial haystack, right? If that's enough to inspire you to go out and dig a hundred times because you made 99 holes, but as, you know, as, as Bradley said, one more hole is worth it, yeah, that was the spot. And, and to see that and that feeling, oh man, it was, it was, it was amazing. So uh, you had an hour to hit the road to make Mother's Day. And you right. Mother's Day once a month. We did. We we we, <laughs> we did. We we got it. We well, we we took this toothbrush as I said recently, cleaned it off because we wanted to see it. They wound up taking a bunch of pictures. Here's something else that people don't know. Um, so while we were digging, we had to get lunch because we we're getting hungry. 
right? <laughs> and so I left and I drove over to a pizza place to get a pizza. Good. And uh, Brian, I guess we couldn't door dash back then, right? So I ran the cultural gardens. So Brian kept digging and I went. And at the pizza place, they had those gumball machines. You know, you put a quarter in and you spin it and out comes some kind of silly prize. So we got a little um, plastic, you know, like tube that came out. And there was this dollar sign, this blingy dollar sign on a black string that came out. I go, oh, this is fantastic. So I took that back with me to the site. And while Brian was eating his slice of pizza, I dug down and I buried it in the spot. And Brian kept digging, and lo and behold, at some point, you know, 20, 30 minutes later, he, he found this plastic, and he pulls it out, and it's this stupid thing from a gumbo machine. So he pops it open, and he takes it out, and it's a, it's a uh, so if you look at any of the pictures from back then, he's actually wearing this black string necklace with this ridiculously pointy, bedazzled dollar sign on it. Because awesome. I said, look, if we don't find anything else, at least we'll maintain our sense of humor and sanity. So he's got that, right? So we, we cleaned it off, we looked, and I remember they're still writing like, guys, we gotta go. Because, you know, finding the treasure was great, but being late for Mother's Day, nothing would have mattered. So we got on the road, we drove the whole way back, we kept joking and going, we're gonna make a movie about this And I'm like, you know, maybe we can get, maybe we can get Tom Cruise. Like, back then I had brown hair. You know, I was probably 30 pounds lighter, was better looking, so we're like, oh, can't get him, we'll call Michael J. Fox, and who will play you, we're doing the whole, we'll play George, we didn't know So we do it, we stop at a, um, at a restaurant on the way back, we just about 30 minutes to eat, and we were starving, and we we're <laughs> eating, and all of the, and, Mar and Brian wasn't a very emotional guy, and Brian had this epiphany moment, right, where we're sitting there eating, and he got very, sort of like, you know, overcome. And I said, what's the matter? And he goes, and it hit him, it all hit him, right? And he goes, other than the birth of my kids and my, my marriage, he goes, this is the greatest thing I've ever, this is the greatest moment of my life. And it all kind of hit in that moment. We were, we were two hours into the ride home, and it hit him, and we enjoyed our dinner, and that was the most I think I ever saw him emote, right? He just didn't hit him. And we got home early, you know, in the morning early, and then we were making breakfast in bed, and uh, so the wives got what they deserved, and uh, and we made it in time. So it, it was a win-win for everybody. Just to illustrate how much Andy loved this hunt, we dug up the cats we had to hurry back for Mother's Day, and he's here today and has to leave as soon as we're done because it's his daughter's birthday. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we only celebrate on holidays and birthdays, so yeah. <laughs> Hey Andy, where's the, he's wearing it in this picture. Is oh God, really? is he? Yeah, he is. Is it in the back? So, Andy can also have a lot of people Oh my goodness. <laughs> he is. <laughs> he's totally wearing Okay, so he really, I, I make it up. It was, <laughs> it was so ridiculous. But he's got it on and this was the, this was the center page from the Cleveland Plain Deal. I'm sure everybody's seen it. It's such a great article. I wish all these years later we could reconnect with the author because he did such a good job. But there is this tiny, cheesy, ridiculous gumball <laughs> that he's wearing um, that, that, that was going to be our treasure if we hadn't found the real treasure. We're going to have to ask him if he still has that. Oh, I'm sure he does. You I'm see sure, I hope he does.
a big fan, and as, as I was also. Um, he just loved George Gershwin. He wrote, he wrote a book, uh, Byron, wrote a book called, uh, not the Webster's Dictionary, where in the back it had, a, it had a big story about like young life in Brooklyn, it had a story about Gershwin. He seemed to focus a lot on Gershwin. And I remember I got to spend a day with his two daughters, Blair and Karen, they were lovely, lovely. And we yeah. were talking about things because we're just trying to kind of piece together, right? You know? And they said he never he didn't even tell his kids. And he didn't tell his kids like you think one day he'd been like, you know, say one time I was in San Francisco and I heard this church, like he never told his kids so they don't really even know. But so they're piecing it together and, and I don't remember if it was Blair or Kara said to me, Oh, his one of his favorite albums was Rhapsody in the Like he yeah. used to play it. Yeah. So that was a confirmer from somebody who lived with him. And so you take that for what it is. It makes, it makes sense in terms of the New York puzzle, but we all write what we live, and we all create what we know, and so that probably does play a part, certainly. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'll just He did something with Moby Dick. Yes. And I can't remember what it was, but he, he yes, he was a fan of Herman Melville. In fact, we we rented a house together in Sag Harbor. And um, I remember. Herman Melville? Yeah, Herman Melville. Yeah. Herman never paid the rent, though. Um, Byron and I and our wives, we, we rented our house for two summers in Sag Harbor together. And I remember we. We talked a lot about whaling because Sag Harbor was at one time a big whaling area, and he was a big fan of Herman Melville. But I can't tell you anything else about it, really. You have to understand. You have to understand something. When you're when you're a friend of someone and he, and, they, and we talk about stuff, it's very different than when you're trying to analyze something about someone. Byron and I were just really good friends. And I never thought about, you know, different things that he was interested in, like like the Civil War. We talked about the Civil War, but I never thought he would do a book about the Civil War. I do remember one thing, though. We both had a copy of the classic comic. Remember classic comics? Sure. Oh, my God. On the Civil War. Hmm. Yeah. I, I remember we both had that, and we talked about the Civil War a lot. I remember going to the Brooklyn Museum the Brooklyn Museum is a great museum. It's a fantastic museum. And they have a permanent collection on the Civil War. Because part of the Civil War was actually fought in Brooklyn. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I just thought the oddity because he, he wrote about Lincoln being shot over his right shoulder basically in his head. So it's odd that Chicago was actually... Over his shoulder. Oh. Really interesting. And you know the and you know early on back in 
2005, 2006, after we had found the Cleveland, um, and we were looking around, and we, after we did Liberty Island and, and uh, Ellis Island, we were kind of scouring the southern tip, right? Yeah. And I remember walking around with Brian, and we got to, what was it, Chaucer's Tavern or something, and there's the plaque outside talking about the West Indies native, and we're walking down Pearl Street, and all of a sudden, there's this plaque, and it's just ridiculous. On what street? Pearl Street. I think that was it. His mother's name was Pearl, by the way. Oh, you know, oh, really? Byron's yeah. mother's name was Pearl. Oh. <laughs> so, okay. And there's okay. this plaque up that says, Birthplace of Herman Melville. Now, uh -huh. I grew up in New Jersey. I read Melville in high school. Like, you never knew, knew right? that he was born. And we're looking at the sign, and again, I never would have stopped. I would just kept going. So, stop me again. I'm going, why is this here? Right here? And... He wrote Moby Dick, and when it was first done, it was The Whale, three volumes, yeah. and that fed into that. And I'm like, did he walk this street? Did he stop because of pearls? Because his mother's name was Una. I just found that, right? So, but there's this plaque that probably 99% of the world walks past, and yet one of the greatest authors, right? Yeah. Has a plaque in Lower Manhattan that designates where he was born. And the only reason I stopped to look at it was because you can't walk past anything and not pay it respectfully.
Nope. nope. But when you were done with the project, we submitted all the photos. If Byron was like, hey, let's do it again, would you have done it again? Anything that Byron asked me to do, I would do. Hmm. And how about? That was legal. <laughs> <laughs> but he would never ask me to do anything illegal because he was such an ethical person. I cannot begin to tell you. Okay. And how about today, knowing all these people have come to to honor this book and to speak with you? Does it motivate you to get out there and, and do anything else like this, or to get more involved with the community? Uh, I'm very involved with nonprofits, so um, yeah, I probably would. I would probably do more. Um, All right, man. Like, uh, since I came to, since this like, book came out, like, uh, everything that like, you've seen about it, like, uh, would you like, uh, still like, be involved in it? Like, what do you think about it like, from like, 1982 to today? I, I tell you, I cannot believe we're all here today about this book. It's just, it, it's mind-boggling to me. No, like I, I think it's great, and any, you know what, in retrospect, I could see it becoming a cult, because Byron was one of the very first people to do CD-ROMs. Remember, remember the term CD-ROM? Yeah. Byron did books for kids in CD-ROMs when nobody was doing it, before there was the iPhone, before there was uh, the Kindle. He was the first one to do online books on CDs. When there were no DVDs, he was a visionary. He was way ahead of his time. He was always thinking about stuff like this. And, you know, he just was an innovator. You know what? I'm sure everybody here can say that Byron was like a pure inspiration. He was. Everything about him and his ideas. We're all here sitting right here now you know, and, and I'll take it one step further. I, I talking to his daughters, who I know were interested in New York and looking because it would be another way to reconnect with their dad. And and talking to all, I mean, I took people from all over the place, and no, I mean, that I never should have met or never would have talked to. Right, great people, and I challenge everybody here and anybody watching. Right, don't stop till all twelve are discovered. Because every time one is discovered, you get to relive his legacy. And it's so worthy because I think anything that has a cult following, how cool is that, right? Yeah. You're, part of a, you're part of something really neat. And it has so many, it has so many worthwhile qualities to it, so many layers to it. So the next one that's getting, somebody once said to me, oh, do you feel bad? that somebody found Boston, because now you're not the last. I said, oh, hell no. Like, I, mean, I, I mean, like, like say if uh, the next cast is full off the ground, do you think that Josh Fitch would, like, uh, want to do another show? Or is it just because of Boston? I still don't think he would. Uh -huh. That's up to Josh. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I, I think he's totally fascinated with it, so I'm not sure that he wouldn't. Uh, again, like I said, he said it, it all wrapped up very neatly and nicely. I joked with him because he said, he said it was a, a sort of a perfect trilogy. Now, you know, you mentioned Lord of the Rings, like it's a perfect trilogy. And I said, yeah, it's kind of like your Godfather, only your part three was better than theirs. So I, I think that I, I'm not. I don't think he's ruling anything out. And I think if there's what a if really somebody wants to find New York, like in the next two months. 
I think. I think. They're being out of the show. My God, there's there's such an interest in this that I think he would absolutely embrace. And, and then New York is like Byron's like backyard. Yeah, I we said this morning. I think it's a swan song. I mean, maybe some people would have said, "Oh, it was probably the first that he." Like, you don't even know the order that he did them. No, obviously. Not but at all. I think you know you. This is where he was from. This was, you know, I think, oh, I think this is probably, and we're all just speculating, but I think when people talk about how complicated it is and how many potential areas, I think this is the one this that, like, the combination of, yes, uh, I think so, I think so. Yeah, and I gotta say, um, I, yeah, I agree. I gotta say, when Ben said anything that Byron would ask me to do, I would do, that really hit me in the heart, um, huh. in the feels, um, because that just tells you about the friendship, and I, I think I, I immediately thought of myself and George. Right. Um, and if George picked up the phone and needed me to do something, I would be right there. Um, and and you know there'd be no questions asked. You could fix um, my bathroom. Though. Hey, you know, <laughs> you know, hey, you started on the bathroom without my permission, so. You know, Byron was the first person ever to do celebrity books for children. He did Joni Mitchell, Both Sides Now. He did Simon, uh, Paul Simon. Um, at the zoo. He did a whole book about At the Zoo, written by Paul Simon. Wow. Byron packaged that book. Wow. I mean, he did. And the Jerry, excuse me, the Jerry Seinfeld book. He did Jerry Seinfeld called The Halloween. Jerry Seinfeld is seven years old, living in Massapequa, Long Island, going trick or treating. But it was cold out, so he was wearing a Superman costume. But Jerry's mother made him wear a coat over the Superman costume. <laughs> and Byron got Hershey's chocolate to put money into the book. So Hershey's chocolate is all over the book. He was the first one to do it. I did a book with Billy Crystal. Billy Crystal's book to his four-month-old granddaughter. Byron did that. He packaged that. He convinced Billy Crystal to do that book. I shot some pictures of Billy Crystal, and then he did another book with Billy Crystal. Wow. So Byron was way ahead of his time. He really was. Wow. Yeah. So and not to mention Byron. Byron is like, uh, when you found out that the people that made, like, uh, Superman, like, didn't make a lot of money about it, and Byron is like, went and, and that was Byron's Yeah. That's fine to say. That right there, like, that was like, that was huge. Like, Byron went into, you know what? my childhood heroes, and I want to see them make money. Right, right. And, and not only uh, the VD you're talking about, but also like video games, like Dragon World. Um, he made the video game, well it's a video game, but it's a text-based adventure game. Um, that's what I consider a video game, because that's what I played when I was a child. Um, it's a text-based game, um, off of, based on one of his books that uh, Byron and John Fry worked on. Just, um, yeah, it's amazing the extent that he went to to bring literature to youth. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But even as adults, and I hate to be so kumbaya and like, right, because I'm going to sound silly repeating myself, but what you just said is so important, right? When you hear this, Ben would have done anything for Byron, right? You would do anything for George. But for this project, you two don't even know each other. Absolutely. Never would have met, as, right? That's right. As a Bradley's wife, I'm going to interject that I call George my sister-wife. <laughs> and right? Share my spouse with this community. 
But I do. I, I will ask my husband, are you speaking with my sister wife? Tell him I love him and it's a love. And, and so that's all part of the legacy, right? Whether you, dig up, whether you dig up a treasure or not. We're all sitting here right now because of Byron Price. Yeah. And that in itself is awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to see on the last question. Uh, ben, a lot of a lot of a lot of cool things have happened because of this book. A lot of people have met a lot of nice people. I've met some of my best friends. Um, anytime I think of my friends, I, I tend to think of one specific memory or something like that. I'm wondering when you think of Byron, what's what's your favorite memory? What's unrelated to this? What what's your what makes you smile when you think of Byron? There are a lot of things, but I think I brought it up before. Whenever he come over to my apartment with his, you know, he'd always have books, comic books for my kids. He would sit down with my kids, talk about the comic books, talk about the books he was working on. He also wanted to get feedback from my kids because my kids were young and he was doing a lot of kids' books. But that's what I remember more about Byron. We'd be walking up Madison Avenue to, to go to Jackson Hole for a hamburger which is one of his favorite hamburger places, one of my favorite hamburger places. And he'd be talking to Ivan and Harrison and Kara and Blair. I mean, that's, all, that's what I remember the most about Byron, is not getting together with him alone, with just me, but with my kids. He was, I mean, if he wasn't a book publisher, he probably wouldn't have been a school teacher. Probably. He, for a very, very short time. When Byron was at University of Pennsylvania, he took on a project with Rick Steranko and to write comics about anti-drugs. Yeah, they published one. Published one. And Byron was extremely anti-drug. I mean, anti-everything, anti-marijuana. He just was not anti-drugs at all. And he felt that this is the way to teach kids about anti-drugs, was through comic books. I mean, he was so, so ahead of his time. Can I ask Absolutely. one question? Of course. I have a question. What do you think his reaction had he not passed, right? Had he been here to this day, how do you think he would have responded to what's going on and all the people? Like, would this have been a great blessing or a great curse with too many people contacting and emailing? Where? No. No. He, he Byron, Byron wouldn't have embraced this. He would have absolutely embraced it. There's no, there's no question in my mind. He would. He would really have fed off this whole day. Um, look, he was a book public, a book packager. He was really a book packager. So a book packager, what they do is they get the artists, the illustrators, the writers together, and then he sells it to a book publisher. Byron didn't really publish a lot of his own books, even though it said Byron Price Visual Publications. If you notice, it was either Bantam or Simon & Schuster. So he would have embraced this. Yeah, he, he would have been very, very excited about this. I know he would have. Mm -hmm. I know he would have. Thank so, you. Matsumal, or Ben, and you'll understand why I call him that if you go to his website. Um, <laughs> Andy, thank you so much for taking time yes. out of your eyes to come and visit with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Oh, it's great. Absolutely great. Thank all you right. all for coming.